0: Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak now by your spirit. Give us the wisdom and counsel to understand your word as it applies to us individually, collectively, and as a nation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavy chapter, isn't it? A lot there, and I'm I'm reading quickly. I'm just trying to give you a flavor, and, and, and I really want to get into kind of what does all this mean? As I mentioned, it's the longest chapter in Ezekiel. Uh, This chapter is considered so sad and indicting that some of the ancient Jewish rabbis did not allow this chapter to be read in public. Because if you read it with all of its feeling and didn't skip any verses and you just read it with all the authority and feeling... It's, it's a really sobering chapter. You would say, I and mean, a matter of fact, if somebody read this and didn't understand all the grace that God had given, some people would say, God is a really mean, angry God. He's going to pour out a lot. Now, on the other hand, you would say, wow, the sins I'm reading about seem pretty heinous too. Burning babies to death, right? Immorality of every kind, So, Israel had quite a sin debt that had built up, and the Lord is just unleashing his fury in words at this point. I mean, the the, the actual fury is still yet to come. Babylon hasn't come uh, yet from the east, uh, as they will, but quite an indictment. But I want to go back to, as I mentioned, verses 1 through 14. Let's start there. And if you're taking notes, uh, I don't have a three-point outline. I've got the chapter kind of bracketed or bucketed, if you will, into different sections. The first section, we'll look at verses 1 through 7, which I call birth, life, and growth. Birth, life, and growth, verses 1 through 7. And verses 1 through 7, we see, now first of all, in the first couple of verses, uh, the Lord makes clear that this is going to, before He gives the historical Uh, kind of context of how Israel came to be a nation, how they were blessed as a nation, he opens up saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her what? Abominations. So the Lord is opening up and saying, I'm going to tell you how Israel became to be the nation that that I uh, raised her up as, but know her abominations. And he goes on to say, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now that might seem strange to all of us as Bible students that say, hold on a second, I've never thought of Israel's father as a Hittite and mother, uh, a father as an Amorite and mother as a Hittite. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Sarah and Abraham were the first two that kind of gave birth to the nation. And, and we'll get to what the Lord is saying in that. But again, that's not a compliment. It goes with the abominations. It's the Lord saying, you have adopted the ways of the land of Canaan. So it's not, uh, it's not the Lord complimenting their heritage there. It's actually just saying you've chosen an earthly, worldly heritage uh, when the Lord had given you something better. But starting with uh, in verse 3, you see the birth of uh, Israel as a nation. Uh, this is the Lord's, you know, this is God actually speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. So the Lord himself is giving this uh, rendering of the history Uh, And notice the Lord gives it in a poetic sense. Uh, And instead of actually giving, you know, uh, I called Abraham, and Abraham went here, he's actually uh, painting Israel as a newborn baby laying there in blood, even the navel cord, the whole imagery. Any of you have ever uh, uh, been there uh, when your wife has given birth? I did. I cut the umbilical cord all three times. Don't know how I did it, but somehow I did that. And. just kind of closed my eyes and acted like I wasn't there, boom, you know. But, you know, all that, you know, and I remember that scene, and, and I kind of, and you can really relate to there's blood and all this kind of stuff, and the Lord's describing a new birth and all that it looks like. Uh, and, and then this poetic style, he the Lord kind of shows how uh, the child grows and becomes A woman, and you kind of understand the the imagery, I mean, even our own country of the Statue of Liberty is representative, oftentimes the United States, Lady Liberty. And so in Israel's case, uh, you see that the child grows up and becomes a woman, and eventually the Lord says, you become mine, betrothed in a marriage relationship. Under the Lord, Israel would become married to the Lord in the same way we as the church are married unto Christ. So the Lord gives this poetic um, imagery of it. But then the nation, as betrothed the Lord, decides, I don't want to be married to the Lord, instead turns to adultery and prostitution. And this is all that, you, if you were reading along, you saw that's the imagery. This is the picture that God is painting. Uh, and adultery and idolatry are often synonymous in the Scripture. So that's kind of the macro view, but let's look at the history here that the Lord uh, talks about, starting in verse um, in verse 4, as your nativity on the day you were born, your navel was not cut, you weren't rubbed in water, you weren't cleansed with salt. They didn't have the clean agents uh, that we do, and clean cleaned just about everything with salt to, uh, for antibacterial effects and things like that. Um, but none of this, as the Lord said, no one pitied you. No one was there uh, to really... Take you up in their arms as a newborn nation. Uh, of course, they were This is this is pointing all the way back uh, to Abraham, and I want to kind of give you a timeline so you kind of understand as well. Uh, Abraham through the patriarchs. Uh, that was about two thousand. Abraham uh, when Abraham was called out of Ur. Remember, he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. His name was Abram at the time. That was about two thousand BC uh, when the Lord. Uh, made a covenant with Abra- Abram or Abraham. So the covenant was made around 2000 B.C. when the Lord said in Genesis chapter 12, remember, I'm going to make your descendants uh, as the, you know, the stars of the heavens. And so that, co- that covenant with Abraham was about 2000 B.C. Then they would, uh, they would be exiled in Egypt. They would be in Egypt uh, after the patriarchs. They would end up in exile in Egypt for about 430 years, and the Lord told Abraham that was going to take place. The Exodus, when they came out of Egypt, when the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, it was approximately 1460 BC when they came out of Egypt. So remember, going back, covenant with Abraham was 2000 BC. Then there's about 400 and some years, in a give or take, after the patriarchs, after Jacob. Uh, Then they're they're in Egypt for about 430 years, and then they come out of Egypt around 1460 B.C. When they came out of Egypt, Moses warned the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 28 is is a great chapter to uh, to reread on that, Moses warned them if they chose to abandon the Lord and turn back to idolatry that they would suffer horrific consequences. They would eat their own children. They would be taken into bondage. They would be scattered among the nations. Moses told them way back at the beginning, don't ever go that route. Then David, he conquered Jerusalem about 1040 B.C. So already the 2,000 years from Abraham's covenant has been cut in half. Now we're at about 1040 B.C. when David uh, conquered Jerusalem. Solomon completes the temple in around 990 B.C., remember it took him seven years, In 990 B.C. he completes the temple. And then Solomon's magnificent and glorious reign ends around 960 B.C., Again, we're descending down in time here. The Assyrians, they attack and defeat a portion of the northern kingdom first in 727 B.C. You have the ten tribes north, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. They split, so the southern kingdom with just Judah... And Benjamin on the south, that was the the nation of Judah, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north. They were attacked by Assyria in 727, uh, partially conquered in 727, fully conquered in 722 B.C. And at that time, they began carrying all the northern tribes away into slavery and exile, and they were dispersed among the nations through the Assyrians. So the ten tribes are gone. Um... And that uh, the northern kingdom is gone by 722 BC. In 680 BC, Assyria attacks Jerusalem, or attacks Judah, the land of Judah, but Jerusalem survives. But Assyria attacked the the Judean area. Uh, Jerusalem survives. Then 590 BC, Jeremiah prophesies of a coming new covenant. Isn't that great? Jeremiah 31 I'll make a new covenant. And you and I are part of that new covenant. The new covenant was not going to be just for Israel, but it was going to be all of us grafted in through salvation through Christ. But that was prophesied by Jeremiah in 590 B.C. Then approximately 586 B.C., what Ezekiel has already told what will come in previous chapters, you've been on Ezekiel study, what will take place in 586 is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will come and he will defeat and destroy and conquer Judah. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed and burned with fire. The temple is destroyed. All the gold, all the, uh, all the elements of the temple are carried away. Temple's destroyed. And then around, um, so you have about 14, if you go all the way back to Abraham, uh, from the covenant of Abraham, around 1400 years from the promise to Abraham until Jerusalem is slaughtered and burned. Promised Abraham, go fourteen hundred years. About fourteen, most accurate is something like fourteen hundred and fourteen years. But in in, in roughly fourteen hundred years, Israel goes from the promise to Abraham to being defeated and slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar in five eighty six B.C. And then, of course, many are taken into captivity. Ezekiel had already been taken along with Daniel and previous. Uh, raids on Jerusalem that happened twice before. So there's about 875 years from the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. That's the covenant of the Ten Commandments, and God enters in. Uh, That's uh, that's to go about 875 years from Moses to Israel. So about 875 years from Moses' stern warning to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, and Moses had warned, don't ever forget, don't ever do that, or the consequences will be grave in turning from God to yourselves. So let's look at, uh, uh, in verse 3, when it talks about the Hittites and the Amorites, Um, as I mentioned, this is really not the way God wants to portray Israel, his chosen, his bride. Uh, his betrothed, his betrothed um, wife, this is not the way uh, he would want to portray, but they are acting as if they're the offspring of the Hittites and the Amorites, which were idolatrous pagan nations. In the same way the Hittites and the Amorites would have passed on their pagan ways to their children and grandchildren, Israel has adopted that. Then you look at verses three, uh, 4 and 5 in the Nativity, um, talks about the navel and and being born here. Uh, The dawn of Israel, uh, very much like an abandoned baby or an abandoned child. Uh, If you remember Abraham, when he came from Ur, um, the imagery here is we're actually looking at Abraham portrayed at the early stages of Abraham's life as a little uh, just defenseless, helpless child or baby. Because Abraham, when he left, he came to Canaan. He had no home, did he? He wandered about in tents. He didn't have, he didn't have a physical, a permanent earthly dwelling place. Uh, he had no home. Uh, he had no offspring for the longest time. Abraham and Sarah were like, we don't even have anyone to pass on a nation to. They got to the point they didn't think that was ever going to happen. Didn't have anyone to pass on his posterity. Uh, he was afraid for his life at times, which is why he lied on a <laughs> of occasions because he was afraid for his life and you can see a little child that's defenseless. Now the Lord did many great and mighty things for Abraham too. He became a mighty man. But at the early stages he was defenseless. I mean can you imagine going to a, go to the land that I will show you. And so God kind of comes and says I saw you and I took you, I passed by you and then um, you, you You notice that uh, as well, uh, Jacob ends up fleeing. Uh, Isaac was asked at one time to move out by the Philistine king, uh, get out of the land. Uh, You know, Jacob even goes to Egypt and has to uh, end up, the the remainder of his days are spent in Egypt, not even in Canaan, uh, not even in the land that was promised to Abraham. And then in verse 6, look at verse 6, when I passed by you and I saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, live uh, and I look at this, and I really think that uh, no one knows exactly, exactly what uh, the Lord means, the, the pinpoint in time. We know the general time frame is, is related to the patriarchs here, based on the timeline the Lord outlines. Uh, but I like, uh, I like to think that uh, this may very well be uh, when Isaac is finally brought forth because he says, look and live, uh, we know that Romans chapter 4, verse 19 says that uh, Abraham did not consider his own body anything but already dead. And then Isaac is brought forth. Just when it looks like there's no way Sarah and Abraham are going to survive as a nation, here comes Isaac. And God says, live. And the nation begins to uh, uh, burst forth. Soon after that, Isaac has two sons, and Jacob will go on to have his twelve and so we see uh, the Lord is the one that gives life. In Ephesians 2:1, uh, we look at our own lives. The Lord came and gave gave us life. It says in Ephesians 2:1, and He made and He made alive you who were dead in trespasses and sin. We too were struggling and dead and had no hope. We were like the baby thrown into the field. Unless the Lord came by, we wouldn't have survived either. And Jesus said in John 11:25, "I am the resurrection." and the life. And so even with related to Israel, we see the imagery of God who gives life to us who are lost and are dead in our sins, Israel too would never have survived. They'd be dead if God didn't speak words of life. And I also love that it says, "And when I pass by you, struggling in your own blood, I said to you, live." Yes, I said to you, in your blood live. Our life is in our blood. I mean, if we don't have blood, we can't be alive. Uh, But it's the blood of Christ which gives us eternal life. And notice this verse in John uh, chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus said, The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. It's true that there's no way we could be saved but by the death of Christ and his resurrection. But how do we believe on his death and resurrection? By his words. Isn't that interesting? When God passes by, you and I, and we're, we're laying there dying like Israel at is an early stage, and Jesus says to me, believe on my words. It's his words that are powerful. His death on the cross had already accomplished the eternal work, but you still have to believe on words. You've never, when you witness to a coworker, you never, I don't think most of you did, you don't roll out a giant poster board and say, let me give you an illustration of the cross. You simply speak the word. And the word is what they latch onto and either believe it or reject it. And the word gave life to Israel as a nation state and Christ gives life to us. Look at verse 7. I made you thrive like a plant. You grew, you matured, you became very beautiful. Um, This speaks of when the children of Israel, verse 7 is when the children of Israel get to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, what happened? They grew tremendously. Listen to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled. Filled with them so much that the Pharaoh began to be worried that the children of Israel were going to outnumber the Egyptians. So he sought to suppress them and enslave them, or they were going to be a bigger problem. At least that was the fear. Obviously, uh, if Israel as a nation uh, was peaceful, they would have never been a problem. But again, the wickedness of Pharaoh couldn't see that anyone else wouldn't have the same evil intentions he had, and so he decided. Uh, to try and wipe them out or at least suppress them significantly. But they had been greatly, uh, as the Lord says in verse 7, you grew, you multiplied. Verse 8, he said, "Uh, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love, and my wing was spread over you and I covered your nakedness. Uh, This spreading of the wing, uh, it's also um, related to the spreading of a skirt uh, in the uh, ancient tradition this was a custom of betrothal to spread the robe or the skirt over, uh, and it signified uh, espousal to the man and the woman. You can see this in, in the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And then when, uh, then in Mount Sinai, uh, when, when Moses brings the children of Israel through the Red Sea and they get to Mount Sinai, remember the Lord comes in a thick cloud and he descends down. And there's a covering of the cloud of the Lord comes down. And this also is what the Lord is speaking of here is that as uh, when I covered uh, the Lord covered the mountain there and he is basically initiating that covenant with Israel there in Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus chapter 19 verses 9 through 14. Uh, then I washed you in water, I thoroughly washed off your blood, I anointed you with oil uh, really the the forty years in the wilderness were a sanctification process. Uh, remember all the all the doubters had to die off, and there was a sanctification process of even uh, Joshua said, before we enter and go over this Jordan, all of you need to sanctify yourselves and be ready to enter into the land clean and so the children of Israel. Uh, They go through a sanctifying process of the the wilderness period and then on into the promised land. And when they come into the promised land, as you saw verses 9 through 14, God says, I clothe you with embroidered cloth and silk and you were adorned with gold and jewels and all these things. And uh, uh, Israel would inherit in the promised land when they would come into Canaan after all those years where Jacob has come down there and they finally as a nation enter in they would inherit the land of vineyards and homes that they didn't build and a land flowing with milk and honey, and they would inherit all of this, uh, really, the wealth of the nations that were there. And then beyond that, the Lord says, uh, you, you, know, you ate well. Uh, the land, of course, was rich. Uh, by the way, they apparently liked desserts then too, right? Pastries of fine flour and honey and all that stuff. Honey buns aren't new, folks. They've been around a long time. Uh, They're probably healthier then, by the way, but uh, that they've been around. And uh, you uh, you were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty, ultimately, uh, starting with King Saul, but then David and Solomon would be the zenith of the height uh, of Israel as a kingdom. Uh, The glory was known throughout the world. Uh, By the time Solomon is in power, um, you know, Solomon would build... Uh, the, the temple which would be one of the wonders of the ancient world uh, the land would become a royal and powerful nation and, and albeit that Israel um, under Solomon the land mass that Israel occupied was the largest in Israel's history uh, you know Solomon controlled much more land than even the modern state of Israel controls today over into Jordan up into Lebanon down into what some parts would be, uh, you know, near Saudi Arabia um, and, and Egypt. So Solomon controlled a much larger landmass, but uh, still, from a empire standpoint, Israel at the height of its glory under Solomon and, uh, and David was never a big mass of land like you would have seen with the Roman Empire, with the Babylonian Empire, or uh, Genghis Khan, you know, one of the largest in the world the British Empire where you've had, you know, large amounts of land that were controlled by a single kingdom. However, uh, even though Israel never was a l- uh, large landmass, it was renowned as powerful and a matter of fact, if Israel under the Solomon and David, if Israel had had the kind of intentions of power grab of most rulers, Israel could have ran Roughshod over many nations at that time. Solomon had a you know massive amount of chariots and horsemen and all and and they had and really they had the blessing of God during that time too. But instead, God gave under Solomon's reign peace. They didn't have nations attacking them. Isn't that really what most people would really want? They didn't have nations attacking them, and Solomon had all the gold and silver he could possibly imagine, and uh, you know everything, and yet it was when they had all this verse 14 you know solomon was bringing you know he had ships he had ships on the red sea if you go down south where eliot is on the southern part of israel on the red sea he had ships bringing gold from india from africa spices silk fabrics all these things from the far east i mean they were doing trade with the far far east long before marco polo who, who then you know opened up the silk road and all those things but uh, or at least told about all those things. And and then he had seaports on the Mediterranean side that were doing business with what would be the west coast of Africa all the way up through the British Isles and Europe, all throughout the Mediterranean. So Israel was actually trading with the whole world. So much remember that the you know the Queen of Sheba wants to come up and see Solomon and his glory. And so man, this isn't even half the story. This place is unbelievable. His fame had gone out in the world. And I really believe, matter of fact, if you study a lot of things of ancient, I believe Israel was known all over the world. I mean, known in South America, known in North America, known everywhere that that Solomon was known. Uh, But many things have actually, history was eroded in the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and things like that. But I believe that, um, that Israel was renowned the world over, and when the Lord says your fame went out among the nations, God means your fame went out among the nations. And what happened then? Well, your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you. You know, they were famous because of who? God. God says, I was the one that had Solomon build the temple. You know when Solomon built the temple, do you know he got down like this? How many kings do you see do that? None that I'm watching on TV. No. See, Solomon started off right, didn't he? In a humble position. Remember, he could have had anything. The Lord came to him and he said, just give me wisdom. And then God really t- to show us all what happens when someone gets everything they could possibly want. Solomon was the start of the slide. And he wasn't the only one. I remember Israel had many twists and turns of going back uh, in the Judges' period and, and even well before uh, you know, they had kings. But but God seems to skip over all that and go straight to: I created you, I took you to glory. You became a great nation. You built the temple, which was supposed to keep everyone there worshiping who? The true and living God. The priests were supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. You were supposed to keep the Passover. You were supposed to keep the covenants. You were supposed to reject the idolatry of the nations. Instead, once, and now Moses had warned this. Moses said, what's going to happen is you guys are going to get really, really wealthy You're going to have more time on your hands. You're going to have a lot of disposable income. I'm paraphrasing the way Moses said it, but he says you're going to have a lot of gold and silver, and you're you're going to forsake God. Now, he didn't say this could happen. He said this is what will happen. And I'm sure he didn't enjoy having to preach that message. He's just saying, just so you know, your ancestors are going to do really well when they get to the promised land so well that they're not going to love God anymore. They're going to love all the stuff God gave them. And let's look at verse 15. If you're taking notes, this, this little section I call believing a lie. So God had said, I've done, I've done all these things. It was my splendor, but you trusted. Now you can just underline this one in your Bible. It, it, it's a mouthful. But you trusted in your own beauty. Played the harlot because of your fame. Those two things, you trusted in yourself and you believed your own press. You trusted in your own fame. You know, a couple Sundays ago when I showed the, the pictures of whether it be Elvis or you know, Princess Diana or you know, John, As- John Jacob Astor IV and these different uh, people, People, you know, we're all the same. We so easily can rebelieve in ourselves. Um, when when God, when God does something great, like Israel, the people started to put out their own chests, say, "Look, look at this! Look what we've done! Look at the houses we've built! We have King Solomon! We're, we we are the greatest nation on earth!" Sound familiar? whole lot of talking about, look what we've done. Look what we've accomplished. Look at all that we've done. And the Lord is sitting there saying, don't you think I had something to do with this? And people begin to worship themselves. They don't really realize out of it. I mean, people don't realize they're worshiping themselves. And they, at first, they don't. I don't think they recognize it. They just kind of think, I'm just enjoying all that God's given. But After a while, they forget that it came from God. You know, we sing in our own nation, God bless America. But I think the song could be rewritten today, America bless America. You know, the whole tune. I you know, think of times, you, know, you look at um, a place like the Northeast up in, in Boston. I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. You know, you look at back three, 400 years ago, do you realize that some of the people in Boston today that are atheists, Let's say they're doing really well. Six-figure income, maybe head of staff at a hospital there, an atheist. You realize that some of their ancestors four, four, dec- uh, four centuries ago were actually st- strong, committed Christians? And if they could come back from the grave and say, what are you thinking? We, we came across a rickety little ship across the Atlantic with rats and diseases, and most of us died that we could actually come here and worship God and you don't believe any of it anymore? This is what Moses would have said if he could come back from the grave. He's like, what in the world have you guys done? Did I not tell you that this would take place? It's, it's, it's interesting because you go to college campuses and, and many of Americans, they would these kids have no idea that many of their great-great-great-grandparents were godly people that serve the Lord, but they've forgotten. Notice how many times the Lord does say in here, but you forgot. You forgot these things. I have one slide up here. I want to we're all we all live in America. Point this out to everybody. I circled a few things. Way up there, whenever Congress is in session, here's the president of the State of the Union address. See what's up. Behind that chair? It says, in God we trust. It's not just on the dollar bills, but it's on the dollar bills, too. This one actually has a picture of the White House. That's a $20 bill. If you have a $20 bill in your wallet, look at it, and you'll see that the White House, we have a big picture of the White House, and it says, in God we trust over the White House. We've got it on the $1 bill. We've got it on quarters. It's actually on all the uh, monetary denominations. But the question is, is that true? As a nation, do we trust in God? Abraham Lincoln in 1863, he said these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to here it is, forget the source from which they come. We forget the source from which they come. The title for my message tonight is actually Don't forget the source. Don't forget. Israel forgot the source. Who was the source of them ever being alive as a nation? God. Who was the source of Abraham ever surviving? God. Who was the source of Isaac coming forth basically from the loins of what would be biologically a dead man? God. Who was the source of David actually even taking Jerusalem in the first place? And Goliath before that? God. Who was the source of helping Solomon build the temple? God. And, And to all that the nation said, look, That's impressive and all, but we really like all this stuff now. We want this. I really believe that uh, Israel goes on. um, Let's look at the next uh, moral collapse. I'm not going to read all of this. you, you, You heard it as we went through it. It's completely vile behavior. The nation descends rather quickly. After Solomon, and there is some good kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, there's some good kings in Judah... Uh, but way more bad than good. And, and the nation continues to send into all kinds of idolatry. Under King Manassas, you know, they really were actually putting babies on molten hands of Molech. The babies would die a horrific death. And they'd burn them, you know. And this was actually sacrificial to the gods. Where did they get this idea? Well, the pagan nations around them did that. Child sacrifice to please the gods, to have a better harvest. I mean, I really, they were trusting these of pagan rituals that wheat would grow instead of that God sends the rain God has the sunshine, God owns these things so there was complete moral collapse all types of immorality um, at, the, at the shrines where they had these um, idols, many of them this, the kind of orgy practices of the pagan nations, of the Romans of the Greeks, the same things that were taking place Uh, all through history uh, were taking place in Israel. matter of fact, Israel excelled in wickedness beyond them, the Lord said. They would even be uh, even more grotesque in the things that they were doing. What made God more angry about it is they knew better. They had been given the law. They had been given the covenants. They had been given the promises. They had been given the patriarchs. All these things were given, and yet they gave themselves over to completely vile food Uh, well, probably that too, but completely vile uh, actions and behavior. You know, today we've killed nearly 60 million babies in America. Israel, uh, I guarantee you, didn't approach anywhere near 60 million, as we have. Uh, Nation-state sins will be paid. Uh, Understand this in in the Scriptures. Individual sins, you and I, we have the atonement of Christ. Nation-state sins, the bill has to be paid. Whatever the bill is, the bill will be paid. That's why God will judge the nations in the tribulation period. No nation that has ever lived on earth will ever escape judgment, none. Individually will escape judgment individual salvation. Make sense? Nations do, Israel didn't escape judgment, and they, and they were God's the apple of God's eye. Billy Graham's been saying for years, if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Of course, nobody tells God what he owes, but the point is, if you study the Scriptures, when I look at Israel, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. Everything they did, we've done. We've told God, uh, even since 9-11 in our own country, we've told God in state after state after state that his design for marriage is irrelevant. Irrelevant. When we tell God he's irrelevant, guess who becomes irrelevant? You don't tell God he's irrelevant. It's still in my Bible, and I believe it's still in yours, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, deceived. God is not mocked. And we're mocking God. We're mocking him in a lot of ways as a nation. And I just don't want to see us mock him as Christians and church people. It's one thing for the world to mock him. But Israel, they, they, they would still go to the temple. They would still have part religion and part paganism. And really, I think as a nation, America's that way because even people that are not religious at the Super Bowl will still sing God bless America with everybody else, you know, and, and really enjoy all that stuff. Because here's what I think Israel believed, and this is what I think most people believe today too. They kind of believe deep down in their heart. They know God will judge these things, the sin, the rebellion, the immorality, all the things. That we're, people know that, that, that God's going to judge it. Here's what they think. It just will be way out there, and I'll have time to change my mind. Uh, well, let's see. I'll get to live it out right to about here, and then I'll actually make a little turn. That didn't work for the northern kingdom, did it? No. It's not going to work here either. Complete moral collapse. Quickly, we'll look at these last three things and we'll bring it to a close. Um, And these are just points of just, so you understand that from a high level. um, Verses 35 through 43, it talks about um, that uh, I'm going to take these nations that you trusted in, the ones you actually paid them. Uh, Israel had actually trusted her enemies and believed her enemies were actually not her enemies. Now these nations hated Israel anyway, but they loved seeing Israel adopt the same immorality and everything else. And some of them Israel paid tribute to for protection, like uh, they would pay some to Egypt. They had to pay tribute to Babylon after the first two raids on Jerusalem. They had to pay tribute. But they actually adopted much of Babylon's idolatry well before a Babylon had ever come. They trusted in their enemies. Hezekiah made a big mistake. He actually showed the Babylonian envoys the entire treasury. The entire treasury. The prophet comes to him and says, "You didn't show them the treasury, did you?" He goes, "Oh, I showed them everything." The prophet's like, "Tell me, you please tell me you did not show them all the gold. Oh, I showed them, I showed them everything we have." Now I don't. Trust. I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't question the sincerity of leaders when they do unwise things at times. Uh, but, you know, you can be sincere about something and be what? Sincerely wrong. Our leaders right now are having discussions with Iran. We actually have people in our government that, that actually trust that Iran, if you shook their hand, that they're going to keep a promise. I have pictures. I should have, I should, I should have brought them. Do you, you know we have pictures of, of our ambassadors shaking hand with the Japanese ambassadors just days before Pearl Harbor? And there's smiles on both faces, ours and theirs. Well, good thing we, good thing we averted that. And they shaking hands and bomb them. That's what Babylon did. Um, how do I know Iran can't be trusted with their current leadership? Well, let's see. They've imprisoned a Christian pastor for nothing but start, but going there to help children in an orphanage. They've imprisoned many, they've killed many Christians. They've, de- they've determined to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So, you know, if you saw somebody that was a hardened criminal, and you saw him walking out of your neighbor's house with all of their stuff, and you saw him put it in the back of the car, and you came up to him and said, Hey, are you sorry for doing this? Yeah, I'm very sorry for doing this. I want to have a handshake agreement that you'll watch my house while I'm out of town for the next week. <laughs> because you said you're sorry, and I shook your hand, and you looked sincere. You looked very sincere. You even had a little shed tear. I-, I trust you. Here's the keys to our house. If anyone breaks in, get them, because you seem like a wicked, violent person that would actually take good care of them. Got it. We'll take care of your house while you're out of town. Yeah, they'll take care of the house, won't they? And Israel was, they lost all discernment. They were in sin, they were doing all these wicked things, and they had no discernment. They were just like a drunken, you know, just stumbling around, had no idea how to really manage the nation that God had given them. At the same time, they were in all these sins. And then we look at the last sections here, verses 44 through 59. uh, They reached a new level of low lower than Sodom, lower than Samaria, which was uh, carried away. Uh, Because, again, they had seen, to whom much is given, much is required. We'll actually see that in our passage. When you actually have so much evidence and you reject the evidence, in God's eyes, you're even worse than a person who has never understood these things and you completely ignore them. They had, remember the ten tribes above, these were their brothers and sisters, those were, their, those were their flesh and blood. They had seen their own ten tribes above wiped out, taken off, taken into captivity, destroyed by the Assyrians. They'd seen really all the cities in Judah. Uh, many of them were themselves defeated. Jerusalem was hanging on, and they still thought, we'll be fine. And we look around, and we've seen God judge many nations before us, many empires have fallen. But people who know the most and ignore it, uh, when I was in Miami, this is before I was saved, one of my friends, um, the wildest friend I had and, we had, and I had a bunch of them that were pretty messed up, the wildest one I had, I never, I never would have, it never would have even crossed my mind that he'd ever even heard a Bible verse. And one night after I got saved, I'm witnessing to him, and it turns out he knew all the gospel. I said, where did you know all this? He said, I used to go to a Christian college. I said, You? You're the worst of all of us. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Because a lot of times when our conscience is seared, when we know a lot and we reject it, we become the ring leaders of evil. That's what Judah became. They were the ring leaders, they became the worst. The conscience is here. Romans 1 talks about this. You know, the depravity goes down, down, down. Each time a person rejects and believes the lie of Satan, believes these things and rejects, the worse they become. But praise God for verses 60 to 63, God's mercy and covenant. Another quote from Lincoln from that proclamation on October 3rd, 1863. Lincoln, uh, he said, they are the gracious gifts of the Most High God who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. Lincoln understood that our nation deserved, you know, we had committed many sins as a nation, slavery chiefest among them at that time, although we now we have many new sins that we've committed as a country. But, you know, he knew that God had every right to be angry with us as a nation for sin and wickedness. Do we realize today, do our leaders realize today, across every level our business leaders our government do we realize today that god has a right to be angry with this nation we keep saying god bless america i i prefer to say america bless god because he's already blessed us hasn't he i mean most of us are some of the most blessed people on planet earth he's already blessed us uh the question is will we turn back to him but praise the lord if we do nevertheless i'll remember my covenant I, i I'm just so thankful that my relationship with God is based on the covenant of Jesus. And this really points to that. He says that you will remember and, uh, that you may remember and be ashamed but never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide an atonement for all you have done. And this points all the way to Christ himself that Israel is going to need some kind of atonement that is not based on them keeping the law which they could never keep. And we need an atonement It's not based on a law which we can never keep. Leonard Ravenhill said, we don't preach salvation, we preach forgiveness. We preach forgiveness. You know, God, as much as, as, much as Israel deserved judgment, God never completely wiped them out, did he? And as much as you and I at times, <laughs> if it wasn't for God's faithfulness, there's times where we probably would say, boy, I wouldn't keep me saved anymore. But the Lord says, but I will because He's gracious and He's compassionate and He's willing to forgive. But we still have to humble ourselves, don't we? And when I look at Israel, um, you know, I, I don't look at Israel and say, oh, look at them. Like I said, I, I look at myself, I look at our nation, I look at the church, I look at the body of Christ and say, where are we acting just as foolish? Maybe not with the same level of wickedness, but where are we being just as rebellious? And, and so the Lord says to us, hey, Remember the day you got saved. Go back to the cross. Amen? Don't forget the source. Lord, we thank you for this time this evening. Jesus, we know that you are the source of our salvation. You're the one that spoke life into our lives. You're the one that gave us eternal life. And, Lord, we don't want to look at the the history of Israel and miss the opportunity to be wise enough to turn in areas that you're speaking to us, and Lord, and to warn others that, uh, that believe that uh, the clock is, will forever continue to go on, but Lord, will you real stop the clock at some point? But we thank you that if we're willing to turn to you, that you'll give us the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of and prophesied of, Lord, that you would give us newness of life. And Lord, even us here tonight, we ask that you'd cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness, Lord, that we would rightly represent you. We don't want to represent our own name or our own accomplishments. Lord, we want to represent you. It's your splendor through us and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you are dismissed,